Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and this is Your Strata Property. This week I am bringing you part two of the Kelly Partners Strata in Conversation Lunch held in Sydney's beautiful Aria Restaurant in April 2017. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I strongly recommend you head back over and check that out. That's last week's episode, episode 70. Right now, we're going to jump straight into the next question that was put to the panel during the lunch. You'll remember that panel included myself, SCA New South Wales President Chris Duggan and Rena Van Oust. The transcript, as always, available from yourstrataproperty.com.au slash 071. Enjoy. So question five, the aim of the new strata defects regime is simple. The quick and efficient repairs of defects coming into effect mid this year. Basically, it's mandating, as we understand, an inspection regime by an independent inspector for new high-rise strata buildings paired with a 2% bond put up by developers to cover defects in the building work that have not been rectified after two years. Some have suggested it would be more effective if investment were dedicated instead to identifying and rectifying the defects before the building process is finalised. Uh, will a bond for 2% of the value of the construction contract in reality be sufficient to cover the actual cost of the defect rectification required and will it provide sufficient incentive for developers to return to the site to rectify the defects? Well, there's three parts to your question, Brett, mm. um, and it's a very complex question. And look, admittedly, this is not a perfect system, but it is a system that the government is trying to introduce to move ahead and, and rectify systemic defects that exist in buildings. Uh, there are many problems with the system that hasn't even started yet. One being that they actually haven't decided on the format of the report, and they're unlikely to decide on that format of the report in the near future. Um, SCA is working very closely with the government, and, and it's a very much a work in progress. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's consideration around deferral of commencement of that. But that's more so the government working in the background. Now, there's three parts to your question. Uh, who will ultimately pay? Well, the consumer. The consumer always pays, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, that's the way the economy works, and it's going to be a pass-through expense by our builders to developers and the like. Uh, will it fix defects? It will go some way to hold in some builders more accountable in some circumstances. That's a very... It's very loyally. Um, it is because <laughs> loyally answer. I know for a fact that builders are already working around separable portion contracts. They're getting advice about how to structure things. I mean, these people are smarter than us around the construction process, mm. and anything they can do to limit their liability, they will. Uh, special purpose vehicles will be more prevalent, and this is just going to be a reaction from the construction industry. Uh, is two percent enough? Excellent question. Time will tell. I suggest it isn't. And the bigger problem is this whole process of identifying systemic defects throughout massive estates all needs to be tied up within an 18 to 24 month period, (laughs) which is absurd based on how long it takes for defects to be identified and the fact that you do not get to come back. Notwithstanding statutory warranties still apply, you will not get many buildings who want to run a defect proceeding case once they've had that bond released. So in a nutshell, it's a good step forward in an imperfect case and my my view of how it needs to be changed is back to your sort of segue question was, 
you fix compliance and tighten that up on site and hold accountability around each of the elements of the construction and go back to the pre-Olympics type arrangements and you will have a much better in-built building. Look, what else can I add to that? Right. <laughs> um, I think we all know. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> I think we all know that the, the problem with building defects is certification and, and private certification, as soon as that started, then, yeah. you know, our, our buildings have gone out the window. And this doesn't fix that problem. I also don't think 2% is enough, but it's better than nothing. The system isn't perfect, but it's better than what we had before. But it is a step forward. Yeah. Yes. But it, it, I imagine this will evolve significantly over a number of years. Question <laughs> six. So down in God's country recently... And this time amongst buying developers and the beneficiaries were the Cronulla apartment owners who sold four unit blocks in a row for $54 million with the help of new strata laws, doubling their estimated value. As the Sharks circle Sydney's full of collective sale and renewal, uh, what role can the strata manager and strata lawyer play in helping these owners navigate the process? And have you heard any interesting stories around collective sales? There was one on the news the other day and the new 75% rule over the past few months. Which is, which is a very interesting rule. I think for the strata manager, it, it's, it's quite a complex um, piece of legislation that we have to navigate. So I think that we should engage good strata lawyers and, and values in the process quite early on to ensure that we are complying, that all our documentation, all our agendas, all our minutes clearly reflect what's required in legislation. Um, Fair trading also have uh, advocacy service that actually implemented now. So for people that are elderly or that are on limited income, they can actually have a free service where they'll be able to get advice. So I think for those elderly people who are vulnerable and who may be the ones that are going to hold out on a collective sale, perhaps um, a manager could refer them to the Office of Fair Trading. Um, that's pretty much, I think, what we can do in that respect. In terms of recent... Um, collective process. There was one actually in, um, in Macquarie Park. So there was 48 apartments that were actually sold for double the value. And, and it, there's been other ones in that area as well because of the fact that they're in Macquarie Park, there's universities, schools, etc. So I think that that area is really um, booming. And um, I think it's a wait and see in a sense. I haven't had any um, experience with it yet, but I know that one of my schemes had a developer approach them directly but unfortunately they weren't viable enough to be included in the process that they were looking at for that development. Those that you're talking about, Brett, in the the question that have happened recently, these wouldn't, my understanding is, these wouldn't have happened under the new law. These would be buildings where you've got one, yeah, and you've got 100% approval to go ahead because the the process under the new law, we say as lawyers, is probably going to take about two years. That would be a quick process depending on the level of dissent you have in the building. But if you have to go through that entire process and end up in the Land and Environment Court to get an order, which is the process that's in the Act, that's going to take you probably two years. I'm working with a building at the moment, which is a four-lot scheme, and we have three owners on board and one that's not. Uh, Equal unit entitlements. So we have our 75%, and they have engaged me to assist them with each step of the way. And I can tell you from the very first meeting that we've convened, we've had pushback from the owner who doesn't like it. So he's tried to stop the meeting. He's tried to say the meeting's invalid. We've been prepared for that because we know the personality that's involved, but that's the kind 
kind of situation that we as lawyers and managers are finding themselves in, uh, at least when dealing with these small schemes. Another um, issue that I came across, and I spoke with Rena about this on the podcast recently, I had a lady who came to me and she's in a commercial building and she said, my air conditioning has not been working for three months and the building will not replace it because they know it's going to cost about 200 grand to replace it because they've had an offer from a developer and they don't want to raise the money or spend any money because they're now in negotiations for a collective sale and they don't want to, yes, they've got the 10-year capital works fund plan, but they don't want to comply with it and contribute because they think, well, why are we putting money in when we know down the track, maybe two years, there's going to be a sale? And that's a really interesting issue when it comes to capital works fund planning and contributing money when you know that this is on the horizon. Just, I mean, you're exactly right. Those ones in Cronulla and others have used the catalyst of the new legislation as a means to actually affect the sale. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. We have one particular case of 160 units on the North Shore um, in what would be considered a you know, medium to prestige development that is currently under offer um, because of the obviously the prevailing upside to be able to do it. But that would be circa $250 million uh, development that's going to be funded by cash. Uh, and it's just interesting. It has is, it is really, I guess, coloured the landscape on what will be happening. The really interesting question from a manager's perspective, and I'll throw it out to you, is obviously most, if not all of you, would or will be approached by agents who are looking to unlock value and try and capitalise on the upside. And there are some legitimate areas where buildings are beyond their economic life and they need to need to be pulled down. Uh, but the I guess the philosophical question is, in assisting with the termination of a scheme, in effect, you're ending your relationship with that client with no guarantee of either being appointed at the back end. So there will be some managers who choose to potentially not assist because they find selfishly that they want to protect that uh, management fee income. But I think, like most things, progress will kick along. And even the threat now of new legislation has been the catalyst for a lot of new development. Mm. Excellent. So question seven, section 80 of the new Act is in relation to the 10-year capital works plan. It states that a notice corporation is, so far as practicable, to implement the plan and to engage experts in the development of the plan. Will the new reform mean that owners' corporations will now actually raise money to match their 10-year sinking fund plan? Interestingly, there is also a new requirement for the new section 109 certificates to set out any proposals to fund the 10-year plan. Could this result in purchases seeking to rescind contracts due to a vendor's failure to disclose contingent or anticipated expenses? Uh, well, uh, deal with the, the last part first. Uh, I don't do much conveyancing, but I have done a little bit of it in a past life. And when somebody's decided they are buying a beautiful new strata unit, they are buying that unit. And it doesn't matter what the 109 says. It doesn't matter what the strata books and records say. It doesn't matter if the Capital Works Fund is funded, uh, if there's litigation. If everybody hates each other, that's okay. I've got a great view and they're going to let me keep my dog. That's So I can't see uh, purchasers trying to back out because of an issue in the documents. It just doesn't happen. As for the requirement to contribute, we now have these lovely little words, as far as practicable. Uh, so there's your out, uh, lawyers and managers. I don't see too much changing. We are saying to, to lot owners when it suits us, when we're arguing the case for the contribution, uh, oh, yes, you must now, there's been a change and you must now contribute. Uh, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say you must contribute. It's, it's as far as practicable. And there's all sorts of reasons why it might not be practicable uh, for the contribution to be made. So my personal view, I don't see too much changing in that regard. Uh, I don't think it is the big stick that it might be made out to be. 
I agree with Amanda totally. Um, the other provision that says that you may engage a professional again. So if you may engage a professional, that means that really you may not. And anyone can decide that, you know, we only want to raise X amount of dollars. And unfortunately, I think that it's pretty much a status quo effect with the new Act. Like most things, being prescriptive in legislation can be very narrow, and so I think it's a good step forward because it's compelled owners corporations to effectively have to opt out, uh, whereas before it was being seen very much as a, a guide and it was viewed that way and quite, you know, it was, it was not really enforceable. So, again, it's progress. It's not perfect, but there are situations when adhering strictly to a schedule is not going to be practical. Um, so I think we need to have that grey to be able to properly manage schemes, you know, and be cognizant of people's you know, cash flow over the long term. And as long as you're being practical and having the discussion, I think it's a good step forward. Excellent. So question eight, Airbnb, Tinder, Grinder, Bubbles. Hello. Airbnb recently played its trump card straight into the hands of New South Wales Strata owners with a proposal to give Strata bodies a cut of the spoils from short stays. Mm. Sounds like a win-win, uh, but you can have the situation where the tenant or the ghost host is subletting the apartment, making a killing and effectively voiding the owner's insurance. Where does the right to quiet enjoyment come into play here, and is Airbnb an unstoppable juggernaut? I think Airbnb is an unstoppable juggernaut, and I think they are very clever. This new program that they've come up with, um, I forgot what it's called, it's the Friendly Buildings Program, very clever. Uh, they've recognised the problem and they have put a solution on the table. And unfortunately, um, they are, unfortunately for the resident owners, I suppose, they are beating the owners' advocacy groups to the punch uh, because they're getting to the table first. If you haven't heard about this friendly buildings program, it's a system, it's a, a software where a building can record the, all of the apartments that are being let on Airbnb. As part of the program, it records who's staying, when they're staying, how much money the owner is making, and the building gets a cut of the action. Very clever. That deals with the issue of the complaints about an extra burden on the common property and the facilities because, hey, well, we're contributing. We're contributing extra. We can cover that cost. It doesn't deal with the impact on peaceful enjoyment. And I am very sympathetic to people who have bought into residential buildings that have no service departments as far as they can see and are subject to Airbnb. And I have always said it comes back to a planning issue and it has to be dealt with at a state government level. And our owner groups and our local councils and our lawyers and our bylaws can only do so much. It has to be a situation where certain buildings are suited to and dedicated for short-term letting and service departments, and others are purely residential. That's my view. It's an incredibly complex issue. It's a, it's a very emotive one. You probably all see it being played out in the media more recently. And it's one the state government has, has taken so seriously that they've taken more time to consider all their solutions on. And there's no perfect solution here, and I do agree that it's become further complicated by... Uh, the engagement of some of the platforms, and Airbnb seems to have, have taken up the flag on behalf of all of the short-stay platforms. From a manager's perspective, and that's the way I'd address the issue, again, any solution is going to require the manager in the middle. So some sort of self-regulatory, self-management platform goes some step of the way. Um, I think we need to 
as an industry, make sure that we properly consider this rather than having an knee-jerk reaction prior to legislation, because the, these are the new world order type regimes. You saw Uber do it, in my opinion, quite poorly. They tried to railroad governments. Um, you've seen now much more sympathetic and collaborative solutions being put on the table. Uh, this has got a long way to run. Um, I think what it's forced to do, and as, as Amanda said, is it's forced owner groups and the like to come to the table, and the government will, I think, be very considered and, in that regard, quite slow in a response to make sure they get it right. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see some sort of a stepped approach to these self-regulatory models before they get to a, um, a legislative thing. The one thing that managers need is they need prompt, effective intervention mechanisms. So whether that platform allows you to counsel people based on poor performance or, or poor behaviour, it has to be acknowledged that these platforms do have inappropriate uses and they have inappropriate conduct. But we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we're in a new world economy and Sydney on the world stage needs to needs to really take up that charge. Um, I agree with both Amanda and um, Chris on all of as that they've spoken about. I think it'd be interesting to see if a selling agent actually um, advertised an apartment and said, Airbnb, you can Airbnb this, this apartment. How many people would actually buy that apartment? So I think when you think about it being your own home, and, and looking at it that way, people spend millions of dollars on apartments and now they're just being used with you know, lots of parties. I think you've got to look at it from the neighbours' point of view. As a manager, we have to deal with all the fallout from you know complaints. So in New York, they actually stopped Airbnb, they banned it. So in a sense, I think um, it could be a stoppable job or not. It just depends on a balance of regulation and how um, the animals deal with the actual um, process of the whole Airbnb um, and the Uber issue as well in terms of New York economy. Yeah, the hotel owners in New York are fairly powerful, yeah, and it's a fairly old economy. economy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so as the ageing, as, 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 as the sort of people holding power are younger, um, they'll, be, they'll have less vested interest with, with power holders. So New York's quite interesting in that, in that respect. And it's a massive hotel market, um, which is interesting. I, I mean, it's, it's from a manager's perspective, we don't really have a dog in the fight, so it's quite interesting to watch this play out. Um, and it's been interesting because our clients are, are very much on one side of it and the new world economy is on the other, and we want a solution, and particularly from an industry perspective, we want a collaborative solution that gives us tools to be able to enforce whatever mechanisms we can to potentially balance the outcome. Because there will be plenty of people who want to capitalise value on their property, but there's also what you can't have is people commercialising platforms and being landlords specifically to run rent rolls out of out of Airbnb. Um, and there's been talk through that platform that you restrict and can restrict investment properties to certain nights, so they become mm. uncommercial to be put on that platform. What it will then require is all of the other platforms to take this up, like your stays and anything else. And, when you cut off one hand, you'll get something else that pops up. So you can't pick on one particular business, and that's why the, the whole share platform thing needs to be dealt with really extensively up front, which may take time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they're the end of the formal questions, but we do have microphones, and we'll run them around to uh, take any questions from the audience. Any questions down there? I'm just um, wondering how much uh, fun strata managers have been having lately explaining the key financial information statements to their uh, to their owners' corporations. How's that going? Yeah, I haven't had any problems with my clients. Because they don't read them. 
<laughs> they're probably used to seeing a lot more information anyway. So, I mean, I still send out both full financials and statements. I think what's yes. the point of not sending both? Because they'll just yeah. bring an answer in. Exactly. Yeah. I think if the more information you give people, the more answers they'll have beforehand. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I haven't had any problems at all. I don't know about others, but... So, Joel, I think one of the important things is to recognise is that the strata management sector is very broad and there will be schemes out there who are receiving this information for the first time and there are those who apply best practice and provide more information than is required. But again, these things are steps in the right direction in terms of owners being better informed, more transparency. Uh, it's like the insurance commission arrangement. You know, the, the disclosure now is fairly normalised. Uh, we've seen, you know, we have people, people are aware, the campaign that the government's undertaken around strata law changes has been fairly broad. Um, so these things will become normalised over time. Um, Joel is one of my guests on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We had a lovely chat, a rambling chat, I'd say, that I think my editor is losing a bit of sleep over at the moment, trying to cut it back to its required 25 minutes. He's a bored man. He had a lot to contribute. And we covered this issue about uh, statements of key financial information. And the issue, I think, from a legal perspective with this is that the statement of key financial information is to be circulated with the agenda for the annual general meeting. The financial statements don't have to be attached to the agenda of the annual general meeting. However, you must have a motion to approve the financial statements. So query, uh, owners are being asked to vote about something that they haven't necessarily seen. The financial statement, because we've had this bright idea that we won't overburden them, our poor owners who may not understand numbers, and we'll give them a statement of key financial information, but we'll still ask them to approve the financial statements, which is kind of weird. And good managers like Rena, like Chris, are saying, look, we are just circulating those financial statements anyway, because we recognise that our owners have to resolve a motion approving them, so we we better have sent them out. Brett, while you're uh, while you're trying to corral the next question, I just want to touch very quickly for any of those people who have done a new scheme uh, under the new legislation. You have noticed significant changes in terms of the way first AGMs have changed, different information requirements, and the introduction of the the good old initial maintenance schedule, which for those who have dealt with it, um, is a is a fairly significant document that's required to be considered and have input into obviously the initial budgets. And in their wisdom, the government has said that owners corporations obviously don't have to oblige by the maintenance schedule. However, it can be used against them in proceedings uh, where there is a defect that could have been remedied via uh, being maintained. Um, so that is from a manager perspective, the robustness about how if you're asked to develop an IMS, an initial maintenance schedule. I would suggest that you need to probably look at that pretty quickly. That will be a big issue, and, and the concern I have is that when an owner's corporation gets caught out by that in the future, they may look back at their managing agent who they've asked in good faith to assist to pull that together about how you put that together and what liability attaches to you for putting that together. So just make sure you've considered how you do that, whether you do it at all, and what information you receive from the builder developer on the way through. And that concludes this special two-part episode, bringing you the exclusive audio from the sold-out Kelly Partners Strata in Conversation Lunch held in Sydney in April 2017. Thank you once again to Kelly Partners for inviting me, Chris and Rena, to be your special guests at this lunch and for supporting the publication of these special podcast episodes. And thank you for listening. Catch you next time. 
Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? Thank you.